Hello, and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And we are continuing our read-through of The Baroque Cycle by Neil Stevenson. Um, and we're starting uh, Volume 2, uh, which is called The Confusion. This uh, volume is made up of two books. Um, one book is called Bonanza, and this follows Jack Shafto's journey around the world. Uh, and it's just him and his balls discovery of magic gold it's seizure we get a lot of other stuff that feeds into like the minerva and and van hoke who we met in the very first volume the very first book so we got that story and then we have the interconnected somewhat story of eliza and to a lesser degree daniel waterhouse and, and newton and leibniz um and some german politics in uh the junto or the junta, however you want to pronounce it. So, and these two novels are basically split up and interconnected. So they run chronologically. So we're splitting between the two books as we, as we read through it. Um, I thought when I first read it, I read it straight cover to cover, uh, and I was thinking maybe I should read one than the other and talk about them separately. But I don't think I'm going to do that. I'm just going to go through it as written um, because that's how the author intended. So this volume covers a pretty broad length of time. It covers 1689 to 1702. We get a few jumps in the narrative. Um, overall, um, well, let's, let's kind of break down what happens here. So for Jack's story, it really does involve him circumnavigating the world, returning to England with this magic gold that he participates in stealing in the early parts of the book. But he loses, but he's able to get it back. He builds the Minerva, or he's part of the group that builds the Minerva, travels back to eventually to the Americas, and then to Europe, and ends up in the court of Louis XIV. Um, and it's basically given a mission by Louis XIV, and that's all like laid out what that is in the next volume. As for what's going on in Europe during this story, the, the Junta story, I mean, basically, with uh, in Europe, it's involved with really establishing the mint, or in England, I mean, it's involved establishing the mint and establishing, like, Newton's leadership of the mint and establishing the Bank of England. Kind of this kind of commercial commerce stuff that we've seen in this book again and again. And that's, of course, been a long, big theme for the whole her first half of this series is just how kind of messed up British commerce is and British coinage. And, of course, Newton would, in real life, take over the mint and help establish a more sound currency at the same time as we get the establishment of the Bank of England, which provides funding for the wars. Um, we're going to talk more about this uh, in the story. Uh, we got that. We also have like Eliza's story and she has a lot of like little adventures throughout this. Uh, she loses all her money. She eventually gets involved in a like a timber expedition proving that she can't actually use French timber to build French ships. You have to import them from the Baltic, but she helps re kind of reestablish a French company for getting uh, timber from the Baltic. She later on, uh, it's revealed uh, her relationship with Jack sort of revealed to at least some people in Europe. This leads to the loss of her son, Jean-Jacques by uh, Lothar von Heckelhaber. So uh, in the mid part of the book, Eliza basically uses her connections in the French court and the war, the war of the League of Augsburg or the war of the Grand Alliance or the Nine Years of War, whatever word you want to use for it, 
she uses that conflict to basically bank, maybe not bankrupt, but really stick it to the Von Heckelhabers. She has kind of a scheme for doing that. Um, and then we have some kind of German politics that she's involved with, with, with Sophie and, and, and Leibniz and those people. So uh, those are some of the main themes going on in broad strokes in this, this book. But there's a lot of wonderful details. This is the most, I guess, action-packed and exciting part of the Baroque cycle. Um, both stories are really uh, kind of dr really dramatic and exciting and full of action of various types. I guess Jack's more than Eliza's story is maybe more heavy on the action. But even Eliza's stories, there's a lot of intrigue and court drama and, and people stabbing each other in the back behind the scenes. And, and there's a lot of tense moments in her story, too. So uh, don't, don't think that the one's necessarily more exciting than the other. They both do that. That makes this whole volume go, I think, a little bit faster than Quicksilver. It's, it's also shorter as a whole because it's only doing two books and Quicksilver had three. But it's still, it's a lot more fast-paced, I think. Um, and that's to its credit. It really is a, a really fun interlude in the book before you get into kind of a little bit more philosophical terrain in book volume three. All right, let's let's jump into this as best we can. Um, all right, we we begin kind of temporary temporarily where Odalisk ended. Uh, so it's like later in 1689. Uh, so uh, basically, it's like the end of Eliza's sort of adventures in the Rhineland. And the aftermath of those and her revelation to Leibniz that she actually had given birth to Rosanelle's child, who is kind of pre presented to the world as Etienne Darcachon's bastard kid. Um, but it's really Rosanelle's. Uh, at least that's what Eliza seems to think. I guess you could still have doubts, but the, the Darcachons have this like genetic defects. That, so a lot of their kids are like messed up. So. Basically, it's implied that it's Rosanil's kid named, uh, and likes to name him Jean-Jacques. Jean after Jean-Bart, the, like a French privateer who later on will be interact with Eliza. Um, and Jack, of course, is the other origin of the name. So that, that's kind of where we pick up, but we pick up with the story of Jack, who we actually haven't heard from in, I guess like three years or so uh, i think we last saw him captured by the by uh pirates and turned into a galley slave in i want to say 1685 or so this is after he crashed the party at the dakashans cut off etienne dakashans hand and uh, escaped destroying the whole room embarrassing that family in front of the king um for this his his later effort to get them involved in the slave trade that ship is captured and the crew is turned into galley slaves. So that's where we pick up with the story. And uh, Neil Stevenson is able to use the syphilis that afflicted Jack to good effect here because um, he sort of just wakes up um, at one moment. Now, what has happened is he's, he's come down with like the yellow fever or malaria or some kind of disease like that. It has a name. It, it's given a name, but I'm, I think it's, it's some kind of fever that he was afflicted with. And this kind of burns out the syphilis. So there's still brain damage in his mind and he still has to kind of piece together his life bit by bit but for the for, for the last three years he'd been going increasingly mad while 
being part of this troop of galley slaves. Um, but he's only waking up, and he's in Algiers, and he just wakes up. He thinks it's a it's a it's a battle because there's cannons going off and everything like that. Um, he's actually wakes up from his kind of syphilitic madness right under like a guy wearing a skirt, seeing his uncircumcised penis. So this is Mosef, Mosef, who is going to be a major part of the story starting from this point on. Um, but you know, he sees this fort he sees the cannons going off he sees the explosions and all this and he thinks there's a battle it's not actually a battle it's actually a celebration of of, of some victory over you know over over no it's a celebration of the real, arrival of the pasha to algiers and jack is actually pretty shocked at how this much gunpowder and effort and money is spent to celebrate the arrival of the pasha when you know this this is how much would be expended on a whole war in in europe and i I like how stevenson doesn't present the rest of the world as kind of backward which it wasn't at the time there was rough equality and development across the world not until the industrial age do you really have a the grand divergence as kenneth pomerans calls it in his book it's not till that point so you still have different systems like really different political systems, really different economic systems throughout the world, but roughly equal levels of development. So it's not it's not a Eurocentric tale, in, even though it's set mostly in Europe. And I think that's to his his credit here. Um, but anyways, Jack wakes up with his long beard, like down to his knees, um, and with with intermittent amnesia. He eventually pieces together most of his life, it seems, by by the midpoint of the story. But he's kind of been losing his mind for a while so anyways jack is eventually sort of debriefed by this character that's introduced in the story at this time moza uh or moses of the cross moza de la cruz moses of the cross which is a, a wonderful name it comes from the fact that he was like a, from a jewish family in spain he's like a spanish jewish uh crypto jew uh, and of course after the reconquista jews were forced to either leave uh, be subject to the Inquisition or or to convert to Christianity. But some of them converted just in name only. Same thing with many Muslims in Spain at the time. So his family is one of these. But still, he ends up a galley slave. All these people on this galley, there's 10 of them on Jack's galley. And they all have their own stories about how they became galley slaves. And it's a wonderful part of this story is, is learning about these different, this, these new characters, all from roughly jack's level of society or some of them are more high up and some of them have different histories but they all end up as galley slaves at the beginning so there's like this equality that's put on them by their condition of slavery but they all have really elaborate histories which is great because it's not just about the elite it's not just about louis the 14th and the, and the kings and even people like daniel waterhouse from relatively privileged backgrounds it's uh, you know a huge chunk of the world's population was put in these you know, in this at this time and, and still today, put you know engulfed by the machine of capital. All right, and that's certainly true of, of Jack and his cabal that that's formed. It's not even Jack's really cabal. That's another great thing about this part of the story is if you know King of the Vagabonds sort of is Jack and Eliza's story. Um, but you know, and I, I I would say much of this book is also still Eliza's story. And that she's kind of moving things and directing them. But even her, she is kind of engulfed in broader 
politics and broader dynamics and she's sort of limited in her freedoms but jack especially is just sort of going along for the ride and once in a while he'll have his exciting contributions but largely it's it's like the story of the armenians that jack met in paris they're the really ones moving this story um, behind the scenes and we get hints of this throughout it's not till the end of the book or the end of the volume that is fully revealed that the story is not really Jack's and Jack's just sort of along for the ride. And that's the sense we get uh, even early on here when this discussion of, of with Moza de la Cruz, where he sort of reveals what's happened to Jack. Um, so Jack was basically seen as dead and was put in sort of a mausoleum. And he started like shouting out in English for, for help from within the mausoleum. People thought it was a ghost. And it turns out it was Jack cured of his yellow fever and cured of uh, the, the syphilis was basically burned out by this intense fever. And Moses says, you know, like some doctors think this happened. I don't know the medical truth behind it. It's really convenient for the story. It's, it's a wonderful device because Jack was always on this timer. You know, he was going to die eventually of syphilis. But by curing it, we, we, allowed it, we can stick with Jack all the way till, till the end of the story, 1715. Well, anyways, I, I'm kind of, I'm not making much progress here. Um, anyways, you got this group of galley slaves, and they're in Algiers, and some of them have been sent off to, like, make wages. It's specifically, uh, I think, people we met before when Jack went to Amsterdam to tell Eliza about this expedition. Mr. Foote and Yevgeny, these are uh, two characters we actually met before just briefly, and they're off, like, earning wages. The wages, it's... Yeah, it's a common in many systems of slavery when the slaves make wages. They get a little bit of day-to-day -day autonomy, but the money that they make often goes back to the masters. The rest of the galley slaves are involved, like scraping barnacles and careening and things like that. And Moses reveals to Jack that he has a plan. Um, and basically the plan is going to be talk the pasha, who's arriving to Algiers, into basically sponsoring them as a as a kind of a subset of the Barbary pirates to steal a load of silver from the Spanish galleon fleets in uh, in Bonanza in in southern Spain. That's the that's the the plan as it starts out, and of course it'll be derailed by by other events and and realizations. But Moses says how important it is to keep these ten people together because they all have different features and they're all sort of in on the plan and. And Jack's important role here is that the he sort of can pose as a janissary, right? Partially because of he's got this uh, V on his hand, this branding, this of a V on his hand, which might be misconstrued as a seven, which might imply he's a member of like a certain barracks, number seven somewhere. And plus, he has that. More importantly, he's got that janissary sword, right? So there's this idea maybe he can pose as a janissary, which can be in the end with the pasha perhaps and give them some legitimacy in that in that respect so anyways he says we got this plan i'm I, i'm working on this plan um and then they go into the city to track down the rest and and we'll go over the people in this this cabal as it starts out it starts out with 10 people eventually it has like 13 or 14 people in it different people get added in and people die off and they get separated and reunited throughout the length of this book it covers, as I said, like 13 years of, of, of history. So anyways, they go into to, uh, 
into town, into Algiers, after like careening all day. And this is after Jack sort of starting to get his mind together. And and during this, we're, we're introduced to Dapa. Dapa is actually, again, he's a character that we were introduced to in Quicksilver uh, in 1713. He was a member of Van Hook's ship, the Minerva, that was transporting Daniel Waterhouse to England. And here we find out how Dapa, so Dapa was originally part of this cabal with Jack Shafto. And we get the background of how Dapa becomes a slave. And I think this is a pretty uh, historically uh, accurate depiction of, of the slave trade within Africa, right? A lot of people focus on the transatlantic slave trade and the, the slave trade in, in the Americas, right? Domestic and all that. Between the Caribbean and mainland North America and all that. That slave trade existed. But there's also a slave trade within Africa, right? There was a market for slaves created by Europeans, demand for slaves, but then how was this supplied? How did the how was this market supplied, right? And the way they did this is local African states, even some of the smallest villages and things, would trade with the Europeans. And of course, Europeans increasingly just wanted slaves from Africa. So they had to supply them. And the way they would do this is either through war. That was a very common way. Is you get guns from the Europeans by selling slaves and you use those guns to capture people in the next village or the next town over. Enslave them and get more guns, right? So there's kind of an arms race among West African towns. Uh, another way was just through is finding criminals, right? And accusing people of crimes and making the punishment for that enslavement. Right. And that's essentially what happens to DAPA. It's a little kind of exaggerated here that the that the, that the local government makes the law not asking stupid questions to the Oracle. And DAPA at some point did ask the stupid question like, why are you enslaving all of our local people? Which was deemed to be a stupid question. And he was enslaved and he eventually was sold off to the Duke of York. So, uh, you know, that's a, that's a kind of another common theme in this book is like the. You know, to make it very personal, the relationship between the enslaver and the enslaved. You know, for Dop, it's the Duke of York. For Eliza, it's, of course, uh, you know, the Duke Darkashan. And for, um, you know, for Bob's, for Bob, it's uh, the Earl of Upnor, you know, kidnapping and enslaving his girl, Abigail. And then this it becoming a story of revenge. Right? Now, Dapa is not going to get revenge directly, but the other characters will get some sort of um, catharsis or revenge for their their enslavement. And I think that's another nice addition here that it's not just about your master. It's about the person who originally enslaved you that has to pay for the for the crimes because these people get moved around and bounced around and sold off to other people over time. So anyways, after hearing Dapa's story as they're walking into the town, they see what Yevgeny and, and is it Mr. Foot? Mr. Foot's more of, I guess, the, uh, I guess the accountant, right? He was the, he used to run this bomb, um, bomb and grapnel uh, place in Dunkirk, right? He's kind of an entrepreneurial type. So everyone has their own kind of addition to the group but Yevgeny and Mr. Foote are running this like pit fighting pit wrestling kind of uh, operation right and so Yevgeny is known as the Rus 
and he's fighting basically for gambling and bets and stuff like that. So that's how he's making some wages during this downtime while they're while the rest of the galley sh- slaves are careening the ship and doing other downtime kind of stuff. All right, so we have the whole uh, galley kind of reunited, and there's ten people. There you have the larboard and the starboard or so, and they have to have equal power, right? To so the ship doesn't go in circles. That's even talked about here. On the larboard or just so we know all our characters, it's Yevgeny, the Raskulnik. The Raskulniks were this dissident set of Orthodox Christians in Russia who got kicked out. You got Mr. Foot, uh, Dapa, who's a linguist. So his job, this is actually explained in a story, that he was a a linguist meaning he would be the intermediary between the European traders and the and the Africans, which is a very, very common role. Many of these people were actually biracial, like sons or daughters, I guess mostly sons of these Portuguese merchants who married took on these African wives, had these kids who were kind of multilingual and multicultural. Dapa just was really good with languages. So he's the this he was kind of a middle Middleman between for, for, for commerce and the African coast. Then you have Geronimo, Geronimo, uh, who's a wonderfully fun character. It's kind of a pity he dies halfway through this volume, less than halfway through the volume. But thankfully we get a story before. He's like a, he's, so I think where a lot of this comes from is in Spain, you didn't have primogeniture. You had like lands were divided between sons. So you had a lot of people of noble blood who didn't have any property. And we're kind of low class, but they had noble blood. And Geronimo is one of these people. He basically becomes sort of a bandit figure in the Americas before becoming a galley slave. And he's got a wonderful uh, backstory, which we'll, we'll say a little bit about later on. Then you have Niazi, a uh, camel trader f- from Egypt, or the I guess the Upper Nile, so he's more like Nubian. Um, but he's, he's that kind of migratory population in sub-Saharan Africa. That's the larboard or the starboard or you have Jack Shafto. Um, now it's important that Jack Shafto is not really clear who like where he went. Everyone sort of assumes he's dead um, and he's kind of posing as a Janissary, but he is none other than our, our good friend Jack Shafto, who who is notorious already uh, in Europe. Then you have Moses de la Cruz, Moses of the Cross, who's the who's this crypto Jew with the. He's the one who kind of came up with this plan that's going to drive much of the early part of the story. Gabriel Gatto, who is defined here as a Jesuit priest of Japan, which in the Stevenson novels is and it's called Nippon. The same thing happens in Cryptonomicon. Uh, maybe in Star Crash too. Snow Crash. Um, but certainly in Cryptonomicon and in this book, it's just called Nippon. Uh, Gabriel Gatto, he's a priest. He's a Jesuit. But he's also like a samurai <laughs> who knows how to use a samurai sword. It's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, then you have Vato Van Hook, Vato, Va, Otto Van Hook, who is this, yeah, later on becomes captain of the Minerva, right? So we've already met this character, but now we get kind of some of his backstory here. He's a Dutch mariner who gets moved around and eventually becomes a galley slave. And then none other than Vrej Esfahanian, who was part of the Esfahanian family that Jack Shafto lived above in Paris for a while. Now, again, I'm not going to care about spoilers, so I'll just reveal this. This, in many ways, is a Fanian story and the story of the Fanians. 
that much of why he's here like it's like what a coincidence that this guy I, I live next door to in Paris is my is next to me as a galley slave well this was all planned because the Asfanians blame Jack Shafto for their decline of their family because after the break the the smashing of the party the crashing of the party and which totally embarrassed the Dakashans Jack fled and he escaped. But the Asfanians who were connected to Jack Shafto through the ostrich plumes, if you remember that they were trying to sell, and for living next to them, were punished. Many of them were put in prison. Some were enslaved. They were made bankrupt. Now, eventually, they're going to earn back some of their money. But he wants revenge on Jack Shafto. So he's you don't real, realize this to like the final pages of this book. But... Um, that's that's going on in the backdrop. But he's there. That's why he's here. That's why this character just happened to be there. All right. Now, Stevenson points this out, how strange it is that this coincidence happens. We even get a little footnote where he writes this. What are the odds of that had been Jack's response when he'd been made aware for he had dealings with Esfanians before? But the others had rolled their eyes, it seemed, but and bit their tongues, giving Jack the clue that there was no accidents, at least where Armenians were concerned, and the presence of Esfanian on his oar was anything but fortuitous. So following this introduction to the crew, we get some of their backstories. Uh, I think we get almost everyone's backstory by the end of the book, um, but sometimes it's a little bit less than others. But eventually we get something about each of these characters, which is wonderful, because they're all really memorable people. You may not always keep track of where everyone is at every time because it is a big cast, but each character is is fairly memorable. Uh, you know, you have Van Hook, who was this Dutch mariner at various times. He was an officer at one point, but gets captured by pirates and eventually gets enslaved. You have Moses' story, um, which is connected to the Spanish-Jewish Jewish diaspora and the Inquisition, and eventually he gets also kidnapped by the the Duke of York's uh, fleet. He's half Indian of a sort. But Moza is able to kind of separate himself a little bit from his personal story and he, you know, he he's, he actually talks about the invisible hand. And of course that's a concept we know from the Wealth of Nations published in 1776. So I think Stevenson is using it on purpose here 100 years earlier um, because, you know, what the elite, what the intellectuals know and put in books was often known by the lower classes long before, but they couldn't publish books, right? Moses could have published a book. Moses was brilliant, but he's a nobody. He's a scally slave, right? But he understands the market. Quote, um, the quote him here, I'm, uh, where is it? Wait, maybe it's not Moses. It's actually Jack who mentions Invisible Hand first. But Moses is able to establish the background that leads Jack to this concept of the Invisible Hand um, when talking about like the slavery and the market for slaves. And Jack says, And ones like us end up as galley slaves. And it is clear to, enough to me why I am assessed at a low value in this market and my nuts gripped most oppressively by the Invisible Hand of which you spoke. Likewise, Mr. Foot is broke. Yevgeny is a daft sect whose members tortured one another. Dop was a persona non grata in all lands south of Sahara. 
Vrejas Festian's family is chronically ill-funded. Senor Geronimo, whatever fine qualities he may possess that I haven't seen any evidence of yet, is not the sort that anyone who has spent much time with him would be disposed to pay a lot for ransom. I know not, not the tale of Niazi, but I can guess it. Gabriel's on the wrong side of the fucking world. All plain enough. But Van Hoke is some kind of naval officer. So the point being is like there is a, a market for for slaves, the ransoming and all that, and he calls it an invisible hand. And I just so it's it's notable that uh, Stevenson is using this Smithian concept, but putting it in the mouth of a, of a galley slave a uh, hundred years earlier, people who would understand the market better than the economists would. So all of this is then followed up by the story of. The narration of El Descomparato, which is the story of Geronimo, as he basically became abandoned uh, in the Americas and eventually was captured in Veracruz and turned into a a piece of capital. Um, Now, I'm not going to go through the story in that much detail because I don't remember all the details of it. Um, But he's educated. He's very flamboyant. He he his stories tend to be tend to rest uh, and he talks always talks this way where he kind of sees himself as a higher class than the people around him because he has this noble blood, but he's a very very low status in terms of his property and his and his life right, but he's uh, you know he's got a bit of education and he's got. Uh, an inflated view of himself, both his military prowess and his and his background and his blood. Um, but he's got a wonderful story that he gets into. I, I, it's the details. It might take too long to get into, but it's it's all involved with a kind of banditry in the and fighting bandits in the Americas and all this kind of stuff. So, anyways, that ends our first glance at book book four of the Baroque cycle, um, Bonanza. Now, what we know is that there's a plan, right? Moses has a plan to get them all free and rich. That's the, the result. That's ho- the hopeful result of the plan. But the details of the plan will be revealed a little bit later on. Then we jump into book five, the, the, the Junkto. And we open with, once again, a quote from Daniel Defoe, A Plan of the English Commerce telling us that this book is, is going to be about commerce. Quote, the commerce of the world, especially as it now carried on, is an unbounded ocean of business, trackless and unknown, like the seas is managed upon. The merchant is no more to be followed as an adventure than a maze or lambreth is to be traced out without a clue. Um, so basically the mysteries of commerce is, is what's what we're being introduced to here. Um and then we we jump right into a bunch of letters. What we're used to, kind of our Eliza story being framed by epistles, um, it's, it's no less true here. Um, and we start out with a, a letter between from Bob Shafto to Eliza, kind of the follow up to uh, to uh, their previous meeting, where basically Bob was trying to recruit Eliza into his own personal war against the Earl of Upnor and trying to get his Abigail freed. And of course they had, they have a romantic relationship to you. Now, a lot of this is just sort of review for us because it's, uh, um, now of course Bob's illiterate. So he's telling this all to a Scrivener 
and Stevens has some fun with the way he kind of relates the letter. But it's there's some background here just to get you back up to speed if it's been a while since you read Quicksilver, I suppose, about DeVoe and Eliza's break, about the Glorious Revolution, and about why Bob Shafto, I mean, why Bob Shafto is in Ireland. And he's basically fighting against the forces that are trying to restore James II to the throne. So in Ireland, you're going to have like a a Williamite war because after William takes the throne, James II flees, but he doesn't respect that and he tries to fight back for his throne and he does that by kind of going to the catholic parts of the british isles ireland right so there'll be a lot of fighting in ireland and that's where bob shafto is dwelling right now then this is followed by uh, a meeting uh, between eliza and rosignol rosignol is the crypt analyst for louis the 14th we met him in the last book he's developed this romantic relationship with eliza father her first child saved her in the rhineland and all that stuff we covered in the last episode but they're at the dunkirk residence of the mark Marquess de, de azor de azor de azor now who are these people i think we actually they showed up earlier in the story but i didn't say anything about them they're the they're like the bastard uh lava ducks the bastard dakashans um so you have uh, Claude Louise the Marquis, uh, who is the, the bastard son of Louis France, uh, Duc d'Arcachon, and his wife is, is also there. Now, what's special about these people is they're like the, they're the nobility that kind of buys their way in to the, the French nobility, right? Which was something that happened in this period of history where people would you know if they weren't born noble but they became wealthy enough they could get their way in like eliza's sort of connect one of those two she's an uplifted commoner uh who gets this title you know eliza de Azur. these people too um buy their way into into the nobility right but anyways they have this this meeting there's this meeting between bonaventure rosignol and eliza where they they kind of Rosignol is able to see his child and so it's a nice little domestic moment. Um, but what else happens here? A lot of it's like romance. I mean, I think this sort of suggests we're getting into a, a, a kind of a more lurid type of story than what we're maybe used to in this series. I mean, there's always been that, that kind of overhang of luridness with Eliza's story, uh, especially in Odalisque, but it's kind of ramped up here a little bit that it's kind of a little a lot of kind of silly romance going on here and flirting and the way she'll kind of blink at people and and and, and flirt with them it's with a with a lot of different people throughout this book and here she's doing it to to rosignol but she's telling a story and the story is that she basically gets um she sort of gets kidnapped by john bart and they take her money and her money is, is kind of seized by the French crown. Essentially, this was another way the French crown could make money is being like seizing it from people and then claiming it as French money and they'd write you a receipt for it. So the money was sort of still hers, but obviously it was gone. For all intents and purposes, her money was gone. Um, and what can you do, right? If, the, if that happens, you can't really resist it because then your life's at risk. You're, you're kind of becoming a, a pariah. But if you go along with it, you can keep your sort of connections. You can keep your 
your reputation, your name, and you can kind of pose it as as donation to 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 the French, you know, the monarchy in some way. And this is going to be a common theme in this book as well, is like how the French monarchy was able to like sustain these war efforts. A lot of it was just through pilfering money from various sources, bankers, or in the in, the, in this case, just stealing it from rich residents. Now, for me, the most interesting part of this section is the the Mar Marquis de Azor, um, where he kind of explains to Eliza that being of this bastard line and being essentially a kind of an uplifted commoner, this gives him more freedom than like the nobility at Versailles give. Um, and this is kind of this interests Eliza, of course, because she's in this situation where she was, you know, earlier on, she was able to work within Versailles, make all these connections with Amsterdam and make money for French nobility or whatever, but she's sort of trapped there. But now she's lost all her money, right? So she has a title, no money, but she, she's kind of a free agent now. She's kind of broken from Moulin of Orange. Devoe doesn't trust her anymore. So she's sort of liberated. And so this guy is able to basically explain to her that you have a lot more freedom than you think. Quote, we have our titles because we are useful to the king. If I were a legitimate son of the Laverdocks, I'd not be permitted to do anything with my life other than sit around Versailles waiting to die. Because I'm a bastard, I've traveled to India, Africa, and the Baltic as far as Russia, and all these places I've engaged in trade. Trade, yet no one thinks less of it for me. Less of me for it. Of course, that's pretty key because the, the whole question of trade being looked down upon by the French nobility was something that was established in the previous book as well, and that also kind of meant Eliza started to do things more covertly, right? It wasn't proper for French nobility to engage in commerce in this way. But if you were this uplifted line of a bastard um, part of the of the Lavadocs, Lavadocs, you could do this. And he basically sent her on a mission. And he, the mission is, you know, the French need a navy because there's going to be this war, right? The war of the Grand Alliance has already started, right? The war against, it's eventually going to be France against Spain, Netherlands, England, and the, the countries of the Rhine, Hanover, and other countries, right? So there's going to be this big war between Germany, Dutch, England, and Spain on one side and France on the other, right? And what they need are, is, is timber for ships. They need lumber. So he kind of dares her. He says, okay, why don't you essentially, you know, serve the crown by being involved in this commerce? So you go on this mission and buy French timber and deliver it to the French, like, dry docks. And she's like, well, I don't have money. And he's like, that's okay. You're buying on behalf of the French king. So you'll have like a blank check to do this. You'll have the credit, but try to do it. And he's kind of sending her on a fool's errand. He knows this. And it's it shows how little Eliza knows about commerce within France itself. But she might know about commerce with Amsterdam and things like that, where things are more established and institutionalized. But that's nothing like trying to get timber from the vast forests of France to to like Le Havre, where the ships will be built. And it ends up being kind of a, a very interesting lesson for Eliza 
and it's it's kind of a fun little episode of, of her adventure. It's not as like dramatic, I think, as when she screws over the 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 Hacklehabers later in this book, but it is teaching her certain lessons about about commerce that she hadn't been exposed to before through her connections in 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 Amsterdam. Although she probably learned should have learned a little bit of that from her German adventures earlier in the story, but anyways, it's it's France is a different cup of tea, I suppose. Now. I'll, I'll say more about this when we get to that part of the story, I guess. Because we flip at this point to uh, Bonanza, back to book four. And we're in the throne room of the Pasha. The Pasha is like the local, basically the local king in Algiers. It's all part of the Ottoman Empire at this point. But Pashas were often fairly autonomous from the, from the Sultan in, in Constantinople. They kind of do what they want. That's certainly true of the Barbary pirate states in the, in North Africa. And so this, we get another kind of uh, epigraph from Daniel Defoe, A Plan of the English Commerce, where, which is all about piracy. Quote, dwelling on the sea coasts and being a rapacious, cruel, violent, and tyrannical people void of all industry or application, neglecting all currents and improvements, it made them thieves and robbers as naturally as idleness makes beggars. They disdained all industry and labor, but being bred up to rapine and spoil, they were no longer able to ravage and plunder the fruitful plains of Valentia, Grenada, and Andalusia. They fell to roving upon the sea. End quote. This is basically Daniel Defoe on the Barbary Corsairs, I guess. And this is basically the basic plan. So they go, these galley slaves, with Jack posing as a janissary to give them credentials. Uh, to give them a little in, in, basically go to the Pasha and offer up this plan. Moza, it's Moses' plan, essentially, but they kind of give the Pasha the details and basically get approval for, by the Pasha to do this. To uh, what, And what the plan essentially is, is to go to Spain, where you have the treasure fleets coming in, from you know loaded with this silver from the New World, right? And basically steal the ship. Steal the ship, steal the silver, I should say. Use the mudlark techniques that was established way back in King of the Vagabonds. Steal the silver, um, and then the Pasha would get his cut of the silver, right? So he's, I mean, basically, he's like a pirate king, right? And so, of course, he would go along with this plan as long as he was guaranteed to get his his piece of it. But it's all connected to the, the global trade in silver, that's kind of also another major theme of this book, right? All the silver flowing to the to the east, right? So they also have this kind of sub-plan to bring this silver as far east as possible to get the highest price because the price of silver goes up the closer you get to the real market, the real destination for silver, which would be China. Quote, um, this is, is this Jack saying this? I mean, there's some like... They talk about like slipper and floor because to talk to the Pasha, they have to be on the ground, prostrate, and they can't talk directly to the Pasha. They can only talk to the slipper, or the, and then he replies talking to the floor. Uh, but I think this is what the Pasha says. Floor, the slippers of many travelers have walked upon you, and the lips of many learned scholars kissed you. And for some of these, you may have learned that while the supply of all the world's silver is New Spain, the demand is in the east. According to legend, the court of the Grand Mughal in Shah Jahanabad and the Forbidden City in Peking are where it all ends up. And just as all the ships on the sea derive their motive 
power from the common wind, so do all the diverse enterprises and trading companies of Europe and the Ottoman Empire draw their forces from this perpetual eastward flux of silver. Accordingly, the best place to exchange crude silver for goods is as far east as possible, lest middlemen take all the profits. The vessel we'll be using is a half-galley or galliot, obviously unfit to sail around Africa and attempt the passage at the Mughal's port at Surat. And so, the farthest east it can possibly travel is Cairo. So this is setting up that the kind of climax of this heist is going to be in Cairo. So it's not just stealing it in Spain. That's the kind of the easy part. But then you have to transport this to Cairo to get the highest like price for the silver. That's part of it. But there's another level to the plan, which involves telling this French admiral, who is Dacoshan, right? The guy who enslaved Eliza the guy that Jack has vowed to kill and the, the person that Eliza has vowed to kill and how, who has been, who has vowed to, who himself has vowed to kill Jack for what he did at the, at his home in Paris or was it Versailles, whatever. So basically to tell him, we will give you a share of this silver and Jack Shafto, who we have access to. If you like escort us across the Mediterranean, right? So that's part of the plan as well. So they're going to need some kind of escort um, to get out because news will get out that they stole it and they'll be captured. So they need some sort of escort from, from this French admiral. So that's going to be the other part of the plan that also relies on Jack. So that's, what, that's essentially why Jack's still alive in many ways. Moses said as much. He said, like, there were several times in the last few years I thought I was just killing you because you were mad with the French pox or the English pox, whatever they're calling it, wherever they are. And, you know, but anyways, <laughs> Jack's essential to this plan, at the, you know, as established here. And they get approval from the Pasha. Essentially, Jack is going to be the bait to get the, the French to support the plan. Um, but first, they have to go to Cadiz, to the place called Bonanza, steal this, this load of silver. So I guess I'm almost done with this part of the story. We flip back now to the Junkto, um, which basically we're at Rosignol's estate. And Eliza's returned from her kind of adventure trying to buy timber in, in one part of France and move it to another. And she basically realizes that it was kind of a joke, right? Now, there's a lot of lessons in this part of the story, right? One is the contrast between real money and virtual money. Because in Lyon, which is presented here as the most like financially developed part of France, where money is done on the books, like all done by books, there's no need to actually transfer silver, right? Which is what Eliza has to do first. She's got the credit from the king. She has to go to Lyon to get like the, the notes that she can use to buy the timber or whatever. Um, but most of what's going on here is just the, the impossibility. She tells the story about the her failure to get timber from one part of France to where the shipyards are because of the impossibility to do internal commerce within within France. I, I'm thinking here of like the, you know, how you had the Champagne fairs. Uh, you know, maybe they're connected to Germany. Maybe that's, they didn't have to go through the interior, interior France. It's just on that border. Maybe that's why they thrived. But, you know, and we I know that uh, that uh, 
Neil Stevenson read Civilization and Capitalism by, by Brudel, this historian. And he that's been a big influence on a lot of his discussions of commerce here. If you read that book, it's three volumes and it deals with capitalism and like daily life and ecology. It's a wonderful series of books if, if you ever get the chance to read them. I think they still they still sort of hold up. But you can sense the influence of that sort of text on this part of the book. Anyways, um, basically what it comes down to is the internal traffic was so... Like, it's, it's kind of actually about the, the failure of absolutism in a way, right? When we think about French state-making, we always talk about Louis XIV, right? And the, the achievement of absolutism over French politics, right? How he kind of reigned in the nobility, started to reign in the church, established himself as the sole authority in France, right? But there's limits to this. And one of the big limits to this was, and now people talk about absolutism, talk about this all the time, I think, how... It wasn't really this authoritarian system that we want to think. It, it's not that totally logical system. At the grassroots, France was still a lot of different, basically different jurisdictions, each with their own rules, their own tariffs, their own local leaders or whatever. And that was the issue with getting the timber across France, right? It's not about buying it. Buying timber is easy, right? It's, it's how you get it through France by land. Because every town you stop at, you're going to have to pay a toll. You're going to have to bribe certain people. You're going to have to bribe the workers. You're going to have to, uh, you know, pay off thieves as they come up and highwaymen and all that. And the whole point of all this is it, it never could have been done. It was an impossible journey and a life that wastes six months, six, six weeks, two months of her life trying to do this. And it's a complete embarrassment for her. Now, later on, she's back at Dunkirk talking to the Dezors, the ones who kind of sent her on this mission in the first place, right? This bastard line of the Dukashans. And he kind of says, yeah, I, I knew you wouldn't make it, but I had to test you. And she's like, well, why? And he's like, well, I wanted to see if it could be done, right? Like five years ago, it couldn't be done, but who's to say it couldn't be done now? We have to test it, right? And and you were desperate enough for a job and, and you know, broke. You know, you were someone we could draft into trying this and it failed right because as he thought it would fail and he said like I, I knew it would happen but he says it doesn't matter because we have a much better way of getting timber into france which is buying it from the baltic so you are going to help me reestablish the like the norse kind of the baltic company the, the company of the north or whatever for france to buy this timber from the baltic states or baltic regions from russia and get that stuff over to France. It's cheaper and easier to get timber from like Russia all the way to France than it is just to get it from one part of France to the other. That's the that's the lesson here. And that's kind of where we can leave it off here, this part of the story. Um, but Eliza does make a really good point here that's going to have ramifications later on and, and I guess sort of pique her her interest in some things. And she notices that the English are so good at commerce, but their money's so bad, right? The French have a much more centralized system of coinage, but their commerce is so fraught with 
disaster, right? You couldn't even trade from one end of France to the other, right? But the English, who have such good commerce, have such bad, co bad money. Quote, it is precisely because the English coinage is so pathetic that I wish to take up the matter with an Englishman. No one here can believe that Englishmen accepts those blackened lumps of species. And yet the trade of England is great, and the country is as prosperous as any. So to me, England seems like an enormous leon, poor in species but rich in credit and thriving through a system of paper transfers. Unquote. And this, I guess, difference between England being like a land of paper money because their species is so bad and their, their currency is so mixed up, right? Remember that scene from Quicksilver where they're like at the market, uh, it's Daniel and Isaac Newton are at the market trying to buy some lenses and like they have coins from like all the, from like Henry VIII's reign, from Elizabeth's reign and they're all blackened and he didn't trust the money and they had to, you know, the question is, is this real money? Was it clipped? Is this really a, you know, a penny of silver or not? Right? The French use, you know, coinage and it's more centralized and controlled, but they don't have the paper money. And right? Except in Lyon, I guess they do. But England doesn't. England doesn't trust its currency, so it's more reliant on the paper currency. Because that, that money amount on the piece of paper, as long as it passes to people, as long as no one wants the silver, it's, it's, it's worth its face value, right? It's only when you have coins involved that people start to say, is this really a penny of silver? Anyways, all of this is going to be key to Eliza's scheme to, to cost the Hacklehavers a whole bunch of money. <laughs> later in the in the book and it's, it's one of the greatest eliza moments in the, in the story but i think i'm going to leave us at that i'm a as i said last time i'm going to do six episodes on the confusion which um so i'm about one sixth of the way through this book already um for me i i think it's it's great to see jack back uh everyone who reads this book is going to love seeing jack again but i think the eliza timber mission is thematically maybe the centerpiece of this of this story uh this part of the story anyways because it's going to set up really what the the junkto is about which is about currency um and money in england and france and the contrast between them and how both begin to move towards maybe well, at least one moves to a more modern system of 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 commerce and money all right i guess that's all um uh, so let me know what you think of the confusion. Hopefully I'm not going to be too confusing, flipping back between the two stories. Hopefully I can keep everything straight. I haven't been taking as careful notes in this part of the book as I did Quicksilver, but that's, um, that's okay. I think, um, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Uh, anyways, uh, let me know what you think. Uh, and thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.